1655, there's a Puritan minister named William Gurnall. He published a work called The Christian in Complete Armor. Here is the elaborate subtitle of the book. The Christian in Complete Armor. The saints war against the devil, wherein a discovery is made of that grand enemy of God and his people in his policies, power, seat of his empire, wickedness, and chief design he hath against the saints. A magazine opened from whence the Christian is furnished with spiritual arms for the battle, helped on with his armor, and taught the use of his weapon together with the happy issue of the whole war. You have to love these Puritans. Try fitting that in your bulletin, on your sermon title. There's an 1821 edition of this book. It consists of three volumes, 261 chapters, 1,472 pages. Yet the book was only an exposition of the 11 verses in our text this morning. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. All that for a little proportion, if you think I'm going a little long. I promise our look at the text will be considerably shorter. But I cite Gurnell because it shows how earnest our fathers in the faith were about the reality and the nature of Christian warfare. A text like this, this text from Ephesians 6, it can be an embarrassment to modern men. Modern people, modern men and women. Either because it's too militaristic or because it reflects a primitive worldview where the universe is inhabited by angels and demons. Who believes that anymore? Ironically, Western man who's supposedly above this sort of thinking now finds himself awash in various forms of paganism and the occult. If you don't believe this, just take a walk through Barnes and Noble and see how many books you find on the occult and pagan religions and New Age spirituality. There's actually a revival of faith in either angels and or demons and the demonic in our day. Right? This whole vampire zombie phenomenon is tied to this. Men, it turns out, have a difficult time living by bread alone. Now, this hyper uh, sensitivity to the spirit world, uh, of course, is, is sometimes it's not our problem. In a tradition like ours, sitting where we are as Reformed and Presbyterian, a text like this tends to be underplayed. First of all, because we focus so much on the sovereignty of God over all things, including evil and evil beings, that we find the notion of open warfare with evil powers to be somewhat difficult to assimilate. I mean, we don't want to think of the world as, you know, as, as a, a sort of a boxing match where God and Satan are duking it out for control of the universe. God and God alone is sovereign. He's the unrivaled king. And our stress on that tends to cause us to, to mute a text like this. However true it is that God is sovereign and in control of all things, 
and it's gloriously true. Nevertheless, that should not be taken to mean that there is not a fierce warfare being waged against his kingdom, against his people, by the kingdom of darkness. We should not think that this warfare is not real. We all tend to be too much modern materialists here. The other thing which sort of erodes the vividness of this text to us is our emphasis, again a right emphasis, that God preserves His people. That He keeps His elect. And that through His grace they will triumph over their foes. But again, if we think we can't be seriously damaged by this warfare, we have misconstrued our security in Christ. So we're going to make three points. Three points. Strength in the Lord, the armor of God, and then watch and pray. Strength in the Lord, the armor of God, and then watch and pray. So first, Strength in the Lord. The Apostle begins, Ephesians 6, verse 10, tells us to be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. He's already referred to this mighty power. Back in chapter 1, it's the power which God exercises toward us who believe, the power which He demonstrated in raising Christ from the dead. The power of God is not a piece of hypothetical speculation. It's been openly, publicly demonstrated in the resurrection. This is the merciful power which in chapter 2, Paul says, raised you out of death, quickened you to life, and seated you with Christ in the heavenly places. So it's important in approaching this text that we see from the outset that the powers and the principalities are vanquished in Jesus Christ. They are vanquished. If the heavenly places are full of dark powers, nevertheless one has passed through the heavens and subjugated those powers to himself. He is going to reintegrate everything. Things on heaven, things on earth. Things visible and invisible. That's the whole eternal purpose of God that Paul started the book with. Yet obviously these powers are present. And they must be engaged. So so how are we to understand this? Christ has already defeated them. But like everything else in the Christian life, we're in this already not yet tension. He's already defeated them, but their defeat is not yet, not fully manifested, not fully consummated. I think the best way to think about this uh, is what one theologian said. He said, we live between D-Day and V-Day. Between the day of the decisive battle and the day of final surrender. That's where we live. And if you're not careful in that interim period, you can get yourself hurt or even killed. And so the key to victory is always a sober assessment of the enemy. And that's what Paul gives us here in verses 11 and 12 where he says we're not contending with flesh and blood. 
We, we're, we're not simply struggling. It would be enough, I think, most times, but we're not simply struggling with our own sin and with the world. We also face, Paul says, and this is what we always forget in the Christian life, we face these created supernatural forces that are personal, that are intelligent, that are skilled and are evil. Scripture speaks of the devil as the god of this world. Right? He's the accuser of the brethren. He's a liar. He was a murderer from the beginning. He prowls around looking for someone to devour. You know, it's one thing to be a Presbyterian and not see the devil under every rock. It's another thing to be a Presbyterian who doesn't see the devil under any rocks. Note, he says in verse 12 that we struggle. Literally there, it's the idea that we wrestle with these powers. Right? You know, in high school, I played basketball during the winter. And one, one of the pastimes of basketball players is you make fun of the guys who wrestle. Right? They're wrestling. You figure they're wrestling because they can't play basketball. But then... We had a gym class where we, for a, a unit of six weeks where we had to do wrestling. And let me tell you, 45 seconds of wrestling, it's exhausting. <laughs> wrestling is really difficult, exhausting exertion. And Paul says, look, you're not just observing these powers. You are struggling with these powers. These powers impinge upon your life. And you're wrestling with them. This is exhausting hand-to-hand -hand combat. Endurance is not going to come easy. These forces are called the rulers of the dark world. Forces of evil in the heavenly realm. We have to put the whole armor on, the text is going to say, to be able to withstand them in the evil day, the day of their onslaught. The end of verse 13, Paul says, and having done everything to stand. In fact, standing is mentioned four times in verses 11 through 14. So it's important that we do the preparation that's going to enable us to prevail in the conflict. You don't just show up for a wrestling match and start wrestling. Paul commands us not simply, we're good at this part, he commands us not simply to recognize Christ's victory and his mighty power. Some sort of let go and let God theology. He commands us to be strong in the Lord's might. We are not called to win the victory here. That's important. Christ has done that. But we are called to stand and fight because you're between D-Day and V-Day. And that's a dangerous place to be. Watch, therefore. Be vigilant. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave. Be strong. And the armor 
that's going to enable us to stand is described in the text next, beginning in verse 14. That brings us to our second point, the armor of God. Now, there are two things that stand behind this imagery. One is the contemporary Roman soldier. Remember, Paul is chained to a Roman guard when he writes this. The second backdrop is that God himself is the divine warrior and is repeatedly described as such in the Psalms and the Prophets. Isaiah 59, the God of Israel arms himself for battle. The text there says, He, Yahweh, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. You want to know where Paul gets this language in Ephesians 6? He gets it from Isaiah. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. He wrapped himself in fury as a mantle. In Isaiah 11, the coming Messiah is described as having a sword which comes out of his mouth and strikes the earth. Isaiah continues and says that the Messiah has righteousness as the belt of his loins, faithfulness around his waist. It is the Lord who is the divine warrior. And expositions of this text which lose sight of that fact are placing you under a legalistic burden that you cannot stand under. It's his armor. His battle, his triumph, his conquest. But we are summoned here to get dressed and to be enlisted in his army. Now, one of the mistakes that's made with this text is that the imagery is forced too much. We press it and we require too much precision from it. We're trying to figure out exactly what each piece is and how it's distinguished from every other piece. But in 1 Thessalonians, Paul can speak of a breastplate of faith and love. He says, put on the breastplate of faith and love. Here, the breastplate is righteousness. Right, that should warn us that the, the point of the text is simply, you need to be arrayed in this armor. This armor is divine in origin. It's sufficient for battle. You could reduce the whole sequence of all these pieces of dressing in this armor to one thing. Being clothed in the new man. The new clothing, which we saw back in chapter 4. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this is. This is, no, not, this is not a different thing other than that. The value of this text is we get to see in some detail what it means to put Christ on. So with that caveat that we can't press these pieces of armor too much, let's take a quick look at them. The first piece of equipment that we're to put on, you can see it in verse 14, is the belt of truth. The idea is that we're to cleave to the truth of God and thus be truthful. Truth is doctrinal, but it's also personal. We need to love it. We need to do it. Truth is critical here, and perhaps the first thing mentioned, because our enemy is a liar and a deceiver and a seducer. The second half of verse 14 says we have to put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is righteous character, which flows from being justified, made righteous freely, clothed in Christ's righteousness. 
and it's against the righteousness of God that the accusations of Satan are impotent. Next are the gospel shoes in verse 15. The main idea here is that the gospel of peace, the good news of peace is ironically a preparation, a readiness for warfare. Satan hates the peace. He hates the shalom of the one new man, the body of Christ. But we stand on the sandals. We stand on the gospel of reconciliation with God in Jesus Christ. The gospel of peace gives us stability in our warfare like a good pair of sandals would for our feet. So it's very important here to see that the gospel on our feet is a foundational piece of armor. We tend to forget this in the midst of the Christian life, in the midst of struggles and spiritual warfare. We tend to forget, A, that the Lord is the divine warrior, that He has conquered, and that it is the gospel on which we stand. We're constantly sliding off the gospel and standing on our own performance. The gospel is the gospel as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved. The gospel in which you hope. It is always, always, and everywhere the gospel and nothing but the gospel. Even when you're fighting hand-to-hand combat with principalities and powers. We never slide into any realm where it's the gospel plus something else. Now we forget this. And it causes us a lot of grief and, frankly, a lot of failure in in spiritual warfare. In verse 16, we're told, in addition, take up the shield of faith, which will extinguish the flaming arrows of the wicked one. The Roman soldier had to withstand these tar-tipped arrows that would be set on fire and then shot at him. The point is that the adversary is aggressive and offensive. And the Lord Himself becomes our shield when we look to Him in faith and take refuge in Him. This is again another example of why you can't press this imagery too much. All of Scripture makes it clear God is our shield. So when we take up the shield of faith, it means to lay hold of God by faith and take refuge in the divine warrior. Next, there's this helmet of salvation. Our present salvation and the hope of its consummation is what allows us to not despair, to hold our heads up and fight safely. And the last piece is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Sometimes said that this is the only offensive piece, but that is, again, to take the imagery in too narrow a fashion. Surely truth and righteousness and faith, these are all things which enable us to fight, to wrestle. Nevertheless, the sword of the Spirit here does have an offensive dimension. The instrument used by the Spirit to slash our enemies is the Word of God. And so here again, this is a reference 
to Holy Scripture, inspired or breathed out by the Spirit. It's the word written, the word confessed, the word preached, witnessed to, and lived, which is our sword. Right? You remember how Jesus prevailed in his mortal conflict with the devil in the wilderness. He, he repeatedly, instinctively, simply resorted to Scripture. It's rather remarkable, is it not, that the incarnate Son of God, who could call down legions of angels, cites the text of the, apostle, the, the prophet, the prophetic scriptures, in his warfare. It is written, it is written, it is written. This is why the messianic warrior from Isaiah slays the wicked with the breath of his mouth. And this is why at the end of history, at the end of the book of Revelation, Christ is seen as having a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. So to take up the word of God is to engage in this cosmic drama between the Lord God and his enemies. This is another re reason why reading scripture is difficult for us. Reading scripture is traumatic, not only because it exposes our sin, but because it enters us into this arena. It's easier just to get around it. But this is why we have to engage the word or risk destruction. You can't go out into this battle without a sword. And you have to believe that that sword is effective. I had a professor who used to say that Christians are, are like, they're constantly allowing the unbelieving world to determine if their sword has power or not. He used to tell the story, he said that Christians are like a man walking down a street who meets a robber. The robber comes up and makes it clear that he wants to assault us, and so we take out our sword. And then the robber says, oh, by the way, I don't believe in your sword. And we say, oh, okay. We just put the sword away. Or we start arguing for the validity of the sword. No, no, you have to believe in my sword because blah, 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 blah. I mean, really, there's really good arguments for believing in this sword of mine. What we never do is just cut the guy with the sword. Just use the sword. It's not that difficult, really. Take the thing out, use it. These are our weapons, and we need to adorn ourselves with them. Our enemies are such that we're not going to prevail unless we heed the apostles' advice. Now, Christianity is not just a set of nice moral principles for people to live their life by in a, civ in a nice civic, civil manner. It's warfare. And that brings me to the third point, which is watch and pray. Verses 18 through 20, right at the end of the text, Paul shows us the central theater of the battle. The central theater of the battle is a life of persevering, constant prayer. I mean, in big picture frame, this text is really about the two basic things in, in, in the Christian life that we're called to do that we struggle with. Engage the word and pray. That's the heart of Christian warfare. Engage the word, walk in it, live in it, use it as a sword, and pray. Especially pray constantly. Pray for the church and for the progress of the gospel. Sometimes we don't sense the intensity of this battle 
because we're just too self-absorbed. And the principalities in power leave those sorts of people alone. So we adorn the armor for a whole host of reasons, but the heart of it is here. Praying in the Spirit, the text says. That means to pray by the power of the Spirit. Even praying, we cannot do by ourselves. We have to pray in the Spirit. At all times, the text says. Repeatedly. Praying all sorts of prayers. Praying with all perseverance for all the saints. Prayer for the church. This is the fray into which we've been called. We're under orders. If we want to see the kingdom advance, we're going to need to be constant and earnest in prayer. And in verse 20, Paul asks them to pray for him as well. There's really two things to pray for here. The church of God and then the evangelistic advance of the gospel. Paul knew his dependence in preaching this gospel as a missionary upon the prayers of the church. And, and notice, what does he specifically ask for? He asks that whenever he speaks, words might be given to him. He wants God to put his word in his mouth. He wants to speak fearlessly and boldly and with liberty and with courage the gospel. Note he calls his proclamation the mystery of the gospel. Hopefully that word is familiar to you as we come to the end of Ephesians. Ephesians is about the great mystery, the mysterious plan of God to sum up everything in Christ, the mystery of the one new man, Jew and Gentile, reconciled in one body. That's the gospel of the mystery that Paul proclaims, and he asks for the church's prayers. He says, I need your prayers to proclaim this gospel. So the prayers we're called to here really have two theaters. All times for all the saints and for the apostolic proclamation of the gospel in the world. Those two things should be shaping our prayer lives. And for this gospel, Paul indicates in verse 20 that he's an ambassador in chains. Ambassadors in the ancient world would wear chains, sort of high-end jewelry, to indicate the pomp and power of the country they represented. So Paul's probably being ironic here. He serves a, a crucified Lord, and he, his chain is a prison chain. But the important thing to remember is that this chained apostle, he's not concerned about his own freedom or his comfort. He wants the gospel unchained through his own lips, and as such, he asks for our prayers. It's before a people arrayed in the armor of God praying fervently for the saints and the prosperity of the gospel, bearing Holy Scripture, not as an academic exercise or as just a private devotional matter, but as a sword spoken into the darkness. Before such a people, the principalities and powers are helpless. So we're called as Christian soldiers to march onward as to war, we have to stand and persevere that we might obtain to the triumph God has wrought in Christ. Calvary and the resurrection, that's D-Day. But through many dangers, toils, and snares, the victory parade lies ahead. 
So take up this armor. Stand and fight so that you might be in that victory throng. Amen.